Hello, everybody. Welcome to You Guys Five Movies. This is one of your co-hosts, Chris Gasper. This is Frank Pelican. Tonight, you're listening to episode 142, and we're back to the 70s horror movies. Tonight, we are covering the top five horror movies of 1972. So, Frank, we've been through 70, 71. How do you feel about this list, and what do you think, if anything, is unique maybe about this year particularly? Hmm. Well, you get a pretty early um, predecessor of found footage horror in this this year, uh, which is an interesting movie. Um, also, some pretty important, like impactful directors um, that'll continue through the seventies and into the eighties um, have early movies from this year. Um, I don't know. Uh, this year, like outside of the stuff that made the list, there's a lot of really good giallo. Mm. Um, so I kind of held off on that because I still would like to do like a top, maybe more than a top five, but like a top X, like giallo list at some point. Right. Um, and a couple of these movies I think are like really worth talking about in context of other, <clears throat> other giallo. And I didn't want to like make that whole list, you know, just Italian, like creeper horror movies. Sure. Um, so sort of held off there um also uh there's some other movies from like prominent directors from this year so there's a couple bava movies from this year that didn't make the list um because again i think that's something i want to do like a whole list of just him at some point um which should be thrilling for you um looking forward some other hammer stuff that i just kept off because I really don't know. I didn't want to make the whole seventies like all hammer, which I think um, you know, there's definitely like the risk for. Um yeah, you're sort of like right now before <clears throat> I don't know what you would call it, like pre really like right on the cusp of like pre modern horror. And the next couple of years have movies that are like definitely some of the most classic horror movies i think of all time yeah we got heavy, um, heavy hitters coming up i mean next few months you know. yeah so this is one of those things where it's just a little before that um there's still some i think innovation in this year um some movies that are i don't know about lesser known but maybe of lesser import but that will eventually like lead into more more important films like down the line um and just some stuff that is deals more with like the i don't know how to say it like the story of the horror of the movie as opposed to like the blood and guts and the gore i guess yeah a lot of these very plot centric um yeah horror yeah i mean i like that a lot and i think that it's um especially when you consider what's going to come in the 70s in terms of like uh the slide the birth of the slasher genre basically um in this decade and stuff that deals more with like much more visceral horror um i kind of like the the break that we have here sort of if that makes sense where we're more talking about these story driven like narrative driven horror movies mm-hmm. so so was there it's anything fun. yeah sorry go ahead. No, I was just gonna say it's funny because you um 
you said that like you like these movies but you didn't really have anything to say about them i think that's interesting because i think i have at least like something to say about every single one so yeah no it, it is it feels um oh i don't know what the word for it is there are movies i sat down and i enjoyed and most of them i don't think i'll necessarily think a lot about in the future unless they're a reference to something else i feel sure. yeah I, um, I understand that but i enjoyed watching all of them uh, to one degree or another yeah one of these is one of my favorite um indie movies of all time too so i'm really excited to talk about that one yeah i'll leave you in suspense <laughs> <laughs> all right uh what else um what else came close to making the list besides giallo was there anything specific well the giallo ones just to go really quickly through them um all the colors of the dark uh the blood spattered bride um don't torture a duckling which is uh rare um lucio fulci um giallo which i really like a lot um and what have you done to solange which is another one of my favorite like just i don't know it's just so crazy it's it's a movie that that deserves to be talked about at length and we'll we'll talk about it someday but um i really like it a lot um barren blood is this year which is uh i don't even know how to explain it like a possession slash crazy bava horror movie um which is pretty good um but again i want to save that for like a bava discussion um there's a good hammer movie uh dracula 80 1972 um but i left it off in deference to a movie that is on next month's list um which i like just a little bit more um there's a altman movie images from this this year oh yeah which is more psychological um thriller to me than horror but it definitely has some um horror elements to it um and it's a movie that i i really enjoy um and that's really it like other than that i think that the five that i put on there are movies that either from a nostalgia perspective or just because i like um sort of the ideas behind them um decided to include on the list so thanks um so i'm assuming we're we can just jump into the list then yeah all right so uh before we do that real quick i just wanted to highlight for next month uh we will be taking our break next week as we do at the beginning of each month for one week and then we will be back with the top five horror remakes that are as good as the original almost like a companion piece to an episode from almost 100 episodes ago uh where we did the five worst horror remakes ever which was a fun episode yeah. um if you wanted to go back and check that out what was it house of wax number one is that right oh my god house of wax pet cemetery um shit Man, I, I, don't, I don't know i don't remember yeah. psycho um, psycho was on there yeah psycho was on there that's right yeah, yeah good old days when we used to actually do the podcast in person oh um so uh so yeah um that was another kind of we we had already planned a a list of the top top five best remakes that were as good as the original we've been talking about it for a year but then um it was recommended by listener chris heil um to make a horror based list on that so we kind of converted the horror which is what it would it wouldn't turn into anyway so um it would have been that in westerns um <clears throat> So, and then the uh, week after that, we will be doing the top five paranoid thrillers 
um, list Frank's like had in his back pocket for like a year, I think, almost to this point. And I've had it in my phone for that long, it seems. And then we will be finishing up the month with uh, the top five horror movies in 1973, uh, which again has a couple movies that are pretty major on it. All right, so number five on your list is The Legend of Boggy Creek. It is directed by Charles B. Pierce. It stars Willie E. Smith, John Hickson, and John Oates. It has no rating from critics on Rotten Tomatoes and a 44% from audiences. You want to tell us a little bit about this movie and uh, why it ended up making the list? Yeah, so shot in, um, I wouldn't call it mockumentary because it's pretty sincere in its approach. Um, but shot in like docudrama style. Um, it's a fictionalized sort of an examination of this Bigfoot-esque monster um, called the Folk Monster, which is in um, Arkansas um, and has been reported sightings since like, you know, at the time of the movie, which is 72, 71, I guess, when they filmed it. Um, they had reported seeing um, like people encountering this creature uh, for decades um, before basically follows the townsfolk of this um, this small Arkansas town, um, which is very, uh, very, you know, traditional, like American small town with a small number of citizens. Everybody knows each other. Um, <clears throat> most people are hunters and fishermen and kind of does um, reenactments of their experiences with this, this creature. Uh, some of which are benign, some of which less benign, um, including it like killing animals and kind of like menacing people, um, but never anything, you know, I don't know, like where it would make it a true horror monster. Um, very, very earnest, uh, small production. Um, the guy that created it, uh, Charles Pierce, um, was a salesman who saved money and convinced a trucking company to invest in the movie um, looking at cost $160,000, which pretty decent budget for a horror movie at the time, but still like not anything like over overly expensive. Um, never really sort of like a anti Blair, Witch, maybe I guess is a way to put it where it's more almost like a David Attenborough style examination of the creature as opposed to like here's this thing menacing people out in the you know whatever um out in the wilderness but um yeah i mean i really don't have much to say about it except this is a movie that was one of the first horror movies i was allowed to rent when i was young because it's rated g i think or nr or something but it's definitely nothing you know there's no blood no guts no nudity um you know, just a really earnest, fun movie to watch. Um, I think that the, I think the Pierce's approach to it, where he films it more, like I said, with an element of, um, you know, kind of love, I think, really, uh, or at least um, I don't know if awe is the right word, but like a reverence maybe for the, the mythology of the creature. Um, it makes it just really fun to watch and you know, the performances are all very, very earnest as well. It was all um, locals, basically, that played the parts of the characters in this movie, people that were like high school students and local residents. 
there is a hilarious segment where oh fuck i gotta remember the name of this kid don't tell me because oh it's um crabtree right james james crabtree is that's that's the kid's name who gets his own like musical segment Shit, basically. sorry i was muted yes it, it is james crabtree yeah played by um buddy crabtree <laughs> yeah so so james crabtree is just this what is it like 17 16 17 years old kid who um likes to hunt and fish and takes supplies to this dude who's uh um like a local hermit basically who lives on his own out in the wilderness and well, i wish I, I i meant to listen to this song before we did this so i could do you give you a rendition but i forgot to do so <laughs> um but it's basically this song like buddy crab trees going hunting he's gonna go and take his canoe gonna sail his canoe down the river because that's what buddy crab tree do yeah um very like david crockett or something like yeah that. Um, but it's just like I said, there's just this, a lot of small things in it that you can tell that it was a very, um, very intimate uh, production to the to Pierce in terms of like, you know, the love that he put into it really and the care and it, it still holds up, I think, from like a mockumentary standpoint or a documentary standpoint, um, docudrama, whatever. Um, really not spoken about all that often um, in terms of people always want to talk about uh stuff like um cannibal holocaust as being mm -hmm. the progenitor of found footage but um there's this movie and then next year or two years from now there's black christmas mm -hmm. um which i think are probably the two real like this movie is is really the i don't know the aside from maybe peeping tom like the first movie that really and this because it does it in a way where it's billed as being a you know a documentary like it's definitely i think really influential um had you ever seen this before you watched it this time no i never seen it before um yeah this it's, is a this is a movie that's not going to be for everybody like like you understand like people are going to like a lot of people like people nowadays if they never seen it will go back and look and think it's boring probably yeah um there's not a lot of like actual scares in this movie um it's the i would argue that yeah i would argue there are no real scares to this movie right right um it's it's the concept that it's a real documentary is is the conceit that makes it scary um makes it a horror movie um that there's this creature stalking the woods and supposedly it's real and <clears throat> Um, no, I hadn't seen it before, but honestly, like, out of movies I haven't seen before so far on any of these lists, like, again, it's an odd fucking movie, but it might be my favorite one that I watched just because it's so odd, like, in the sense that it's, like, trying to at least be part horror, part documentary, part pastoral, like, part procedural. Um, it's just this really, like, oddball mix of genres inside of this docudrama and it just made me like feel good when i was watching it i i like it, it reminded me of something old that i hadn't seen before and i don't know what it is it's like the narration i really like the rustic feel to his like to the the delivery and his voice the the guy's name is Vern steyerman 
and I still haven't watched the town that dreaded sundown, but apparently he's the narrator of that as well. Yeah. Yep. And um, I just think he has a great voice for something like this uh, that makes it feel a little old timey and folksy. And um, I think he's like perfect for, for that. Um, I, I really like the use of real people. Like if you go through the casting, it's like most people in here are just like using their real names to some degree, like yeah, right. their first names. Or like I said, Buddy gets changed to James Crabtree, but his real last name is Crabtree. It's um, I, I, I like that. It feels like it adds authenticity to some degree to some of it. And um, yeah, I don't know if you like you can have nostalgia for something you haven't seen before, but that's what it felt like is uh, watching something that I would have seen when I was a kid and um, that I hadn't seen in a long time even though I never seen it. But yeah, I really enjoyed this a lot. I thought it was a really interesting experiment. And um, it's pretty crazy that it happens so early when, what is it, like another like eight years or something before Cannibal Holocaust? Like happens as like, like kind of like a yeah. legit documentary style. Yeah. Yeah, it's, um, I mean, definitely I would say probably its biggest influence would the movie it influenced most would probably be something like Blair Witch, right? Um, just in the way that it presents itself as as that mm -hmm. here are the facts as we know it kind of thing. Um, although Blair Witch lacks an actual a narrator, you know, it has the opening uh, text crawl or whatever that does the same thing. Um, but you can tell that Pierce really loves like this part of the country. He loves mm -hmm. like that area, folk or whatever. Um, in the way that he films the. Like you said, like it, it, it does have this pastoral element to it when um, the fields at the beginning, like when the kid is coming back from his encounter with the Bigfoot, mm -hmm. um, the narrator is a boy, I guess, and he's walking across the the fields of like flowers and wheat and then through the trees and stuff. And it's just all very, um, very rural America and has a definite charm to it in that respect. So yeah. same Hard thing with even the way he does the like the streams and rivers with during the crab tree song and stuff like that i mean is 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 similar to that it's it's um it's interesting yeah. yeah it's hard to even classify it necessarily as a horror film i don't think um but there are some elements of like suspense and um the the scene where the two girls are in the the two girls and the child are in the house and the monster's kind of like menacing them from outside has some mm -hmm. some tension to it so sure um yeah that's really all i have to say about yeah. it the only other thing i had to follow up on is have you seen any of the sequels to boggy creek at all yeah i've seen the um i guess the first sequel okay uh what is it return to boggy creek i guess mm -hmm. um and then there's boggy creek 2 which is the one that pierce actually directed um which i've only seen in the mystery science theater 3000 oh. uh treatment um oh, so it's that it's that 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 band um it ain't good gotcha. gotcha it um well because it eschews the the approach of this where it's not it, it's just not the same thing it's it's yeah. it's not as good a movie gotcha hate to shit on the guy but um yeah it's really not worth watching there's also apparently some 2010 movie that just steals the title um and doesn't have any other like real relevance aside from just calling itself um boggy creek uh 
I've never seen that and really have no interest in seeing it. So. All right. So uh, number four on your list is a movie called Deathline. It was released in the United States under the title of Raw Meat. It is directed by Gary Sherman. It stars Donald Pleasance, Norman Rossington, David Ladge, Sharon Gurney, and a small bit by Christopher Lee near the beginning. It has a 91% from critics and a 44% from audiences. Um, so you want to tell us a little bit about this one and um, how it made the list. I'm actually really surprised by that audience score because this is a movie that um, that I watched maybe... 85 or 86 it was one of those ones where it was a a channel 54 um saturday special Mm -hmm. um where they edited out any of the real like war and stuff um of which there's not like an incredible amount but there's enough um so the the premise of the movie is that there are there's this guy who's a I don't know the British terminology necessarily, but he's like an MP or something. He's a member of MI5 and he goes missing in the sewers or the not sewers. He goes missing in the, um, the London underground, like the um, subway stations underneath London. Um, after talking to a, well, trying to basically like rape a prostitute necessarily, like, I guess, um, he gets surprised by something that you don't immediately see and ends up unconscious on the stairs. And this young couple, um, played by, uh, uh, Sharon Gurney and David Ladd, um, David Ladd being absolutely the worst performance in this entire movie, like completely outclassed by every other actor and maybe one of the worst performances in like a horror movie in the 1970s, sadly, like very, very wooden, very, um, uh, I don't know, just grading, I guess. Um, they report the crime, but when the, uh, I don't know what it is, security or whatever, um, station security comes down to investigate, the body's gone. So they go to the police, which is Donald Pleasance, who's like the lieutenant, I guess, or sergeant, whatever, the guy that's um, uh, head detective for this part of London. Right starts to investigate he finds um that mi5 is not on board with him investigating um these crimes or this disappearance um this is the christopher lee uh cameo which is actually maybe my i I mean i i love donald pleasance always but this is maybe my favorite performance in the whole movie is this like five minute cameo from um christopher lee as a, a member of mi5 who's basically run afoul of Donald Pleasance before and is telling him like you need to abandon your search um so part of the movie is Pleasance investigating it and getting told not to investigate getting drunk um sort of talking about how these disappearances have happened before um very procedural element to it uh with their investigation and then the young couple who are kind of talking through like well, what happened to this guy the woman much more concerned about it than the man um and they don't really become suspects but pleasant you know questions them a few times and then this couple um of cannibalistic troglodytes that it turns out are the remnants of this group of 
would you call them like workers or whatever like miners that mm, were that um, trapped, trapped in a cave when the underground was still being like dug mm-hmm. um and eventually uh the woman um patricia she comes back and she gets kidnapped by the male troglodyte because the female who was pregnant dies um so he's i guess basically like in his own kind of i don't know crow magnon way like trying to court her by like touching her face and the only thing that he can say is um mind the doors because uh, i guess that's all he's heard for his whole right. life it's actually um if it, if it wasn't played so straight it would be kind of ridiculous right but like they definitely are playing it where you know like you're supposed to have some empathy for the guy right um so eventually you know the her boyfriend and the police come and they find her and the guy the um troglodyte man gets knocked unconscious and um you think that he's dead at one point but then the last scene of the movie is just a long shot of the um the tunnels under the under the underground and his voice coming out disembodied saying mind the gap or mind the doors so um again there's the horrific stuff here um again not like necessarily a straight horror movie it's more of like a weird crime procedural with like almost like lovecraftian elements to it like that's more that's actually what captured my my imagination when I saw it when I was a kid was this kind of a weird horror element to it. Um, it feels like something that Lovecraft would write with these, you know, almost like albino deformed diseased creatures living under uh, living under the streets, surrounded by the bodies of like the dead that they've collected to feed off of. Um I think the special effects there are fantastic, like the special effects of the bodies um, of the wounds of the underground people. Um, I think the horror more comes for me in the element of uh, her and her horror and her like inability to um, basically like she's dealing with an unreasonable being who is stronger than her and able to overpower her and has no idea like why she's afraid but is trying to impose his will on her which is pretty horrifying um and it was something different from the standard british horror of this time so one of your complaints i think not complaints but one of the things that you talk about with British horror a lot is the fact that it's very traditional in the sense of, you know, here's a wolf man, here's a vampire, here's Frankenstein, whatever. And right. That tends to be like what hammer focuses on in the seventies. So seeing a movie with these actors that I knew, you know, Donald Pleasance from Halloween and Christopher Lee from like a thousand movies, um, having it be so much different than the standard British fare, I think was really appealing to me uh, as a kid. And I still really enjoyed watching it this time. I remember being a lot more scary when I was younger. Sure. So maybe there was something as a kid that I was just really afraid of like 
I think people I living under cannibals living underground is pretty scary as a kid. I I certainly yeah. I mean the fact that, that I think there are still people that like live in isolation in underground locations and you don't know what the hell they're doing like and how they're living under there I think it's still pretty terrifying to me to some degree just like I would be terrified of like people that like live in attics and shit like that and yeah subsist on the remnants of other people's lives I mean it's yeah the general idea just of like you know going down to the subway like she's she makes actually the stupidest move in the entire movie because here's somebody that's terrified of what's happened to this man for the majority of the film. Um, and then just like happily will stay on the subway after her boyfriend gets stuck. Like, so, you know, I'll just wait for the next one to come along and then immediately gets like, you know, captured and kidnapped. Um, again, the, really good performances i mean pleasance is always good um i, I love I, I really love Ple- like some people complain that it's like he's phoning it in and feels like he doesn't want to do it and stuff like that i think they're misinterpreting it. i think this is just like this really cynical detective that would be, rather be doing like pretty much anything else than <laughs> right well his first inclination is that here's these fucking hippies who need to get a haircut that are just full of shit right like wasting his time um how is how is it possible that this you know important government official goes missing and like no one's come around looking like and then i I, the thing i think is actually really cool about the christopher lee performance is that the implication is that this guy's just a scumbag and they're like you know what like we're pretty sure he's doing something we don't want people to know about so you just need to leave it be like it's not even the concern that anything's happened to this man or that he's dead it's the god we don't want anyone to know like what this guy gets up to in his his free time so mm-hmm. um and i love that performance of his yeah, like it's, yeah, yeah i like it yeah i like it a lot yeah it's genuinely one of the most um alive performances i think uh-huh. of his in the 70s like where it's just so out of type with him to play that role sure um but yeah i uh big fan of of that and yeah, no, I just, I really enjoyed it again this time. I like the fact that it takes place in, like, a small setting, kind of, in the sense that it's just this area of the underground that's been, you know, that's collapsed, and the set design and the way that they lay out the corpses kind of has a reminiscent of another one of my favorite 70s movies in um, Deranged, um, and I like, you know, the way that they do it here, so, yeah. Yeah, I, 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 I've never, I had never seen any of the movies on this list, so I'll just get that out of the way, so I don't have to keep saying it. But yeah, I, I watched this one night. Um, oh, what was it that we discovered that I ended up watching this on? We discovered it somehow. Um, Pluto? Nah, it wasn't Pluto. It was another one that we discovered. But um, <clears throat> anyway, so I went through Prime where it's like has a million channels yeah yeah i can't remember i'm sorry so anyway i i I watched it on there like on my computer one night and um yeah i was really taken in by it i i so you asked about the criticism of this like you were surprised that it's so low so a lot of the complaints is that it is less of a horror and too much of a procedural yeah I get. and when you said that it's like so different from a lot of like british movies at the time it's also still to me very british 
in some ways like sure if we jump ahead a year two of the movies on that list have long investigations before you get to kind of like the the climax kind of and um um one one in particular that has christopher lee in it um and there actually there's three movies on that list and it's like it's very traditional for the slow burn it seems during during these british movies of like these movies that like kind of have investigations leading up to the horrific thing and i think depending on how that is done is whether they're successful or not and i think because of the fun of the lee cameo i think of the performance of pleasance i think this and and the interesting concept like you said of like moving away from the traditional monster and having it be the more maybe realistic monster at least the cannibal underground made it a really fun and interesting movie i enjoyed watching it i thought it had um my notes i don't have a lot to say but it's like i i thought it was a really fun and funny score to the movie um like it Mm. made me chuckle but i also enjoyed it and um there's a really good i don't know anything about gary sherman and i didn't do a lot of research into him but um there's a really great when they're like going through the cannibals like layer there's a really great uninterrupted shot that lasts for a long time like a long time like he they took great pains to make sure to get that shot um uh what is it the the past i I think of that like shot from the passenger that um Mm. uh what's his name like and um oh what's his name and like like somebody took for 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 deadline deadline took the time to do that you know and it's like it's it's really impressive um so i think there was a lot of effort and love that went into this movie and i think it shows through um I, i think it's a fun movie to just sit down and watch so I want to talk about another movie from 1971 that almost made my list mm-hmm. last month. Um, that's similar to Deathline in tone in the way that it's filmed, although not really at all in terms of like narrative or plot. In a uh, Ten Rillington Place, that stars um, John Hurt and Richard Attenborough, um, about John Christie, who is a British serial killer, and it's one of those things where I didn't know that. It's the same thing here where this this with the cannibal has enough of a horror element that's fantastical, I think, that I wanted to include it. But there's a lot of British movies from this decade um, and the early 80s, like The Craze is another good example, where they're about, or Mona Lisa, that's another really good example, where they're about like really interesting, um, like salacious things, and they're just done in such a stiff upper lip British kind of way that mm-hmm. they sort of lose like some of that element, which is why I think I love Hammer so much because Hammer is always going to be exploitive in, in its its own way. You know what I mean? Like, and I, I really right. appreciate that, that element to those movies, but um, yeah, I, I like Deathline. I think that um, like you said, probably not for everyone. And I think that's definitely reflected in the scores from the, the audience but um still an enjoyable movie and and well done so i did have one thing i wanted to bring up to you um since i i didn't have a lot to say but i did some extra research and um based on the reviews is a lot of people are saying that with the release of a 2004 movie called creep um 
and this is oh sorry uh filmed by a director christopher smith that the guy that ended up doing triangle um if you remember that movie mm. um and just did the banishing recently um so he's a he's a horror director but his movie called creep but not the one that you're thinking of this is a franca potenti and um uh oh i forget that guy's name sean harris you know that actor too um who actually plays the creep but it's about a like it's the same concept it's like the london underground um and there's like a hideously deformed killer living in the sewers and stuff like that have you seen do you, are you familiar with this movie no i don't know it no um but a lot of people could say that with like a lot of younger people say with the release of that movie and how effective it is that it makes this now seem kind of outdated and that's there was a lot of people referencing the idea that was outdated and some people referencing specifically this movie making it feel outdated um so i think that's the other side of it rather than it just being like a slow procedural with not a lot of horror action that's one side of it the other side of it is people feeling it's outdated in part because of seeing things like creep after the fact like you know beforehand that um and then going back and studying like older horror and seeing it and not being as excited or impressed by it um i just wanted to kind of clarify that but i didn't know if you had seen creep or no i'd be interested in seeing it now i don't i don't necessarily ever agree with the idea that a movie being released decades after another movie invalidates or outdates the original movie and because i think that it's just a certain shit you know what i mean like yeah sure like maybe you could say it's a more effective version but it's also a different mindset different time period so sure. i don't know yeah uh, <clears throat> they're, they're, a lot of young people feel that way i think um though like about like going back and looking at older things often so yeah, but that's a shame because you is. can actually tend to appreciate the newer things more mm-hmm. by seeing you know what inspired it i agree uh creep is, oh i just looked up creep is on tubi um mm. you care to watch it at some point yeah i'm pretty sure i've seen it pop up before there's like 75 movies called creep so <laughs> that's right yeah um, um whenever i see them i'm always like i don't know if i've seen that creep or not but i'll uh, i'll check it out um i thought triangle as much as i disliked the plot of that movie i thought it was really fun so it'll be interesting to see if like i've never watched anything else of his so um the banishing's been recommended to me a bunch of times so i didn't even know he did that is that the one that takes place in um uh it's the wife who marries the preacher and her and her daughter go to live with them in some like british um like county church or something Is yeah that it's right? like a, yeah it's like a vicar yeah yeah yeah. Uh-huh. yeah that's it yeah. uh yeah it's um i think sean okay. harris is in that too yeah yeah it's it's okay it's fine yeah it's not like there's nothing wrong with it and it's not there's also nothing like particularly great about it although there are some really good scenes um it's very british yeah your point so. that creep was his first movie just so you know and then he did a movie called severance which is a comedy horror movie yeah i love that movie oh okay 
Um, then he did Triangle. Then he did Black Death with Sean Bean and. and oh yeah, Renee. that's also that's also a good movie. Okay, and he did a movie called uh, it's a straight would, comedy called Get Santa. You would not like Black Death. I'm going to tell you that. Okay, uh, it's exactly the movie that you would hate. Sure, Get Santa sounds like it's a Spin Chagrin movie. Um, oh, there's um, plenty of them. As Warwick Davis and um, uh, Jim Broadbent. Then he did a movie called Detour, which is a thriller film. Um, Ty Sheridan in it, and then The Banishing. So, um, all right, all right. So number three on your list is The Other. Uh, it is directed by Robert Mulligan. It stars Chris and Martin Uvernoki and Uta Hagen, and then Diana Moldor. It has an 83% from critics and a 65% from audiences. So you want to tell us a little bit about this movie and uh, how it made the list. Um, so I don't know what you would even classify this as. It's like a creepy kid movie, which I know isn't like everyone's cup of tea. Um, general premise is that uh, Holland and fuck, what's the other kid's name? Holland and Niles are these two brothers who live in this small New England town. Um, Niles is generally like the nicer, more respectful kid. Holland's a troublemaker. Uh, they kind of play pranks and torment like the their older, elderly, like female neighbor. And um, increasingly like do worse things to people. Um, and you find out that they have this psychic ability to do something called the game that their grandmother, who's a Russian, I guess, Russian immigrant, um, taught to them, which is basically yeah. like a, um, fuck, astral projection slash psychic manipulation thing where they mm -hmm. can, um, influence people's minds and make things happen, um, so the first thing that they do, well, they basically murder their elderly neighbor by scaring her to death um, because they're forced to apologize um, and then cause their mother to fall down the stairs and become uh, paralyzed and mute um, as a result of her injuries. And the whole time the grandmother is seemingly protecting them. Um, so... Niles is really, I guess, sort of psychologically damaged in a lot of ways. And you can tell that the grandmother is very much like doting on him. And you find out that the psychological damage comes from the fact that um, Holland, who was his twin brother, had actually died the year before on their birthday uh, by falling down a well. And that Niles has basically been denying the brother's death and using his own psychic powers to kind of project the brother in his own mind um so he doesn't have to come to terms with the fact that his brother's dead right um but also that it's niles is the one that's really um like basically murdering people and causing these things to happen so his i can't remember what the relation is uh john ritter is like his cousin-in-law or whatever um and his wife have a new baby and they bring the baby home from the hospital and Holland um, 
who's inspired by the Lindbergh kidnappings. This movie takes place in the forties. Um, kidnaps the baby and and hides it away, or takes the baby. And Niles is like, "Oh, Holland took the baby," but you know, at this point, you know that Holland is is dead. So then, the last part of the movie is this kind of tense search for this child who ends up being drowned in a cask of like wine or beer or something um of which the local drunk is originally blamed um so the grandmother tries to basically kill uh niles um because she knows that he's always like she's not going to be able to control him and he's going to be increasingly like he refuses to face reality and get help um and you think the first that Niles has perished because she sets this barn that they've been playing in on fire. Um, but then the end of the movie is Niles staring out a window and still talking to Holland. So the implication being that um, obviously he's going to do like worse things in the future. Um, so I actually want to ask you questions about this movie instead of me talking about it, really. Oh, Jesus, that's because you have nothing to say about this movie. I no, 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 I do. So. <laughs> I I have very little to say about this movie, like like nothing to say other than that it was okay. I but. really loved this movie the first time I saw it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I figured out early on. I guess I, I I was trying to remember when I was watching it. When did I figure out that Holland was dead? Because I know that I had figured it out prior to the reveal of Holland being, you know, where she takes him to the gravesite. Mm-hmm. Um, but I couldn't remember exactly when. And I remember being really impressed by the way this movie tackles that um, and kind of hiding the fact that Holland isn't around. Um, sort of in the way that uh, Shyamalan would do much later. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And one of the things with this movie, with this list specifically, except for the number one movie, which is on there just because I love it, is I, I think a lot of these movies have some um element of influence on things that came later sure like even with deathline you look at stuff like you said creep but there's also chud mm-hmm. i think is an obvious mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. takes things from from deathline so in this movie i i think there is things like um specifically uh the sixth sense but i also um in the terms of the creepy kid genre i think there's stuff like um the good son um that draws elements from this movie um so i was just curious like when do you feel like you knew the reveal that this movie that the kid was dead and what was your opinion on how that reveal was handled i think i suspected it i can't remember the exact scene i remember there's a scene where the two boys are talking to one another at some point and it crossed my mind that that was a possibility but i don't remember the exact kind of like time that that happened i don't think it was it was one of the times they talked it wasn't like that far removed from the actual reveal um I liked the reveal overall. Like, I mean, I thought it was fine. I didn't see any, like, necessarily problems with it. Like, I didn't think it was cheesy or overdone, um, unlike some Slam Lam Ding Dong, like, reveals. Um, So, I mean, 
I don't know what you're looking for, but I was like, I, I thought it was fine. And I, I think I suspected it, but I didn't know for sure at some point, probably at least 20 minutes before it happened. I'm just curious because I really, I really like the way the reveal is handled in this movie. Mm-hmm. And I like the fact that it's because a lot of times in these movies or movies where there's a unreliable narrator, you know, so to speak, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um, it's always like, well, it was just in their head and it's trickery. Um, but it's not really necessarily just in his head. It's he has these, you know, and I, I wish they explored the whole psychic power thing a little more. Sure. Because um, I think it's fascinating, especially to use the idea of like, you know, basically this woman's like an old Russian witch mm-hmm. who's... Um, mm-hmm you know, who's taught her grandchildren to use this power and then realizes too late that it was probably a mistake because, you know, her grandchildren are psychopaths. Um, but I find it fascinating, like that performance and just, I, I, I think that her, uh, Uda, whatever her name is, um, Uda Hagen. Yeah. Best performance in the movie in the sense that like, she definitely, you definitely feel that confliction in her where she wants to, I mean, she says specifically, like, you know, I loved you more than I've ever loved your mother, um, talking to her grandson, and he's a murderer, and I think she realizes he's a murderer, but is so conflicted that she can't bring herself to give him up or turn him in, and I think that's actually the most interesting part of the movie is that confliction, and also just the, just the way they, um, the way they present, like, these the the psychic powers and the kids Mm -hmm. having this ability and how you know it's it's presented as a game really similar to the way that it's done in um uh twilight zone the movie uh with the um the kid that can control the reality um i don't know right i think i'm more of a fan of killer kids than you are in a lot of ways you absolutely Um, are yeah I think it can be, I mean, I think it can be terrible when it's not done well, but I think when it's done right, I think it can be a super effective way to... I did not have any problems with this movie. Like, I'll say that. Like, I I, I thought it was an interesting watch. I thought at times it scenes or concepts ran their course like throughout the runtime, but I wasn't necessarily taken out of the movie or bored. Um... <clears throat> I but yeah you're right I, I I certainly have a bias towards evil kid movies like I don't particularly care for them which just came up this past week over a text thread with friend of the podcast or Ryan Willmaker in a movie he was watching um yeah I'm not a, I'm not a big fan of those movies overall but I I, I like this I I thought it was a good movie um I I did wonder because the thing a couple of questions I had for you um is like how in 1972 like before this like how much are you seeing like astral projection like can you think of movies that like predate this where it's like you're seeing things like that like outside of a fan completely fantastical like setting maybe um like the the idea of like telekinesis and manipulating things like psychically and astral projection feels like it's like the powers feel very much like things like the shine 
to me is what the reason I'm yeah. asking. I mean, you figure that this is the end of the, you know, the summer of love era where there was a lot of mm. hokey mysticism and hippie bullshit. Um, you've got, you know, Mephisto Waltz that we talked about. Right. Um, right. With that dude whose name I can never remember. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that's witchcraft kind of and like Satanism, but still similar in tone in that respect of like you know being able to manipulate others um yeah i'm I'm missing before you know i mean i'm missing something super obvious too where that's like definitely like a big part of it and i really can't remember what it is now i'm annoyed with myself i wish i would have wish i would have known this question was coming (laughs) i could have prepared um it's fine but there are a lot of movies from this time period especially in terms of like british films that are that have the heavy dippy bullshit well they're focused more on like the folklore aspect of things yeah um as opposed to the hippie nonsense um where it's more about like and that's kind of why i like this sort of like even though they it's portrayed as astral projection which is kind of like a pseudoscience um, it's also portrayed as a hereditary thing, like almost like a second sight or whatever from this from the old world, right? Which I think is why I like it. What I like the most about it is that idea that um, you know, here's these these kids who can't even like begin to understand this power that's been bequeathed to them, like by you know their genes. Um, and they just do what kids are going to do, which is they take advantage of it and use it to, you know, basically fuck around and be assholes. But unfortunately, you know, cause the death of like several people. So, yeah. But I really enjoy this movie. I think, um, I think it's one of those movies that's kind of forgotten in a lot of ways. And maybe part of that is because it's difficult to, difficult to watch. Um, where did you watch this? Did you have to watch it through illicit means? Yes, I did. Yeah, so it's not streaming anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, I've owned it on DVD for probably 20 years at this point or close to. Um, but yeah, just something that's kind of been forgotten. One of those, I hate to use the term hidden gem, but kind of a, you know, just small forgotten horror movie of the 70s that... um was sort of popular at the time i really kind of want to read the book that it's based on because it sounds fascinating Mm. um and the guy that wrote the book that Tryon dude is the guy that wrote the screenplay and i think that's pretty fascinating as well so yeah um you you mentioned uda hagen's performance in this i don't do you know much about her i don't think so uh she was pretty big on broadway like uh doing things like check off and um uh george marshall and stuff like that and she ends up uh doing othello with paul robeson and ends up getting caught up in the blacklist mm. uh, the hollywood blacklist and ends up kind of like losing a majority of her career um because of all that and becomes a teacher and uh 
taught in the west village for a long time and like the list of people that like she like like taught is your girl amanda pete um mm. but uh sigourney weaver matthew broadrick uh liza minnelli Whoopi goldberg jack lemon charles nelson riley uh john stewart al pacino um she was judy garland's voice coach like she she has like a long like history of like teaching um long successful career teaching um to go along with all that but yeah she was apparently really 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 impressive and well-known actress um and uh she she ended up like uh doing blanche during like she ended up taking over for blanche during the national tour in streetcar um at one point like she was a really well-respected actress that got called up and all that bullshit um and um but yeah but passed along like a lot um to future generations so it's it, well, it, like when i saw her i've never seen her in a movie or anything before so it's like when i saw her I, I had heard her name and knew she was part of the blacklist but uh yeah she's really good in it and i also think the child actors are really good in it yeah like, they do a really good job too. yeah um what about john ritter man hey man and it's, it's like it, look, seven minutes of screen time it's this could unless in 2031 like i I get um, real men on a podcast of movies that Frank's never seen and Chris used to love, but probably doesn't like now. Um, <laughs> or somehow we do something with Problem Child or North of like terrible children movies. Um, in 2028, like, I don't think John Ritter's making a fucking podcast ever again. Like, so let's yeah we'll we'll give him a little bit of shine right here for seven minutes of screen time um maybe the only time john ritter ever makes this makes this podcast uh i looked him up when i saw him in the movie i was like shit will we ever make this again and probably not so um maybe sling blade somehow pops up one day i don't know we'll see um probably movies that frank doesn't really care anything about but has to pretend like list in five years um i don't know if i pretend to like sling blade i just don't know if i like sling blade anymore because it's been 20 years since i've seen it so sure yeah I, it's, it's a movie that i think i need to rewatch at some point uh just to see whether i think it holds up or not a lot of good performances in it, but um i know but um as a movie i don't, I don't know i don't know if it holds up or not he was in a movie called Shadow of a Doubt that, like, I was thought it was a remake of the Hitchcock, the Hitchcock in 1988, yeah. but it's not. So, um, Melanie Griffith and Tom, Tom Berenger, Craig Sheffer, mm. and Huey Lewis. Huey Lewis, like, in the news? Yeah. Nice. He's the fourth lead. He needs a um, new drug. <laughs> uh, yeah, I thought this was a good movie. Um, overall like i i was entertained by it despite like my prejudices and biases so um i thought there's a lot of interesting things about it and again like i was it looks really nice too like at least the illegal copy that i oh (laughs) yeah so i did want to talk about that a little bit Mm -hmm. um i think the use of like shadow and color in this movie is amazing and there's a lot of times where in hindsight when you're looking at um a scene where he's basically speaking to himself like with his dead brother as a proxy 
is done where he's in shadow or at least mm-hmm. the scene is shaded somehow and it's um it's really good foreshadowing and uh really well done and it's got like the technicolor sheen to it a little bit but it's definitely done in a way to be subversive i guess to the actual like the bright colors are more subversive rather than meant to be bright and and pretty it's meant to be almost like um shit i don't even know how to describe it like tales from the dark side (laughs) used to do that a lot where they would Mm -hmm. film things that were um super bright and meant to look like they were friendly and like pastoral you know to use that word again um but were actually like super dark on the interior and i think that's i think it's pretty brilliantly done here so yeah well, you know you know that this is the guy that directed to kill a mockingbird right uh-huh yeah um yeah it's um i says this is the second movie i've ever seen of this guy um ever well you're welcome <laughs> Maybe it might be the last um, as I look through his other movies here. Um, so, all right. Number two on your list is Brian De Palma's Sisters. It stars Margot Kidder, Jennifer Salt, Charles Durning, William Finley, and Bernard Hughes. It has an 87% from critics and a 72% from audiences. So you want to tell us a little bit about this movie and why I made the list? Uh, so pardon the pun but this is a good sister piece to the other um it is about this woman who's being ostensibly stalked by her ex-husband um who meets uh through a sort of like candy camera-esque game show um this young advertising executive uh they hit it off go to dinner end up going back to her apartment um and being intimate with each other um the ex-husband is like outside like creeping on him but the guy kind of tricks him into going away and they end up having sex and then the next morning she asks him if he can she reveals that it's her birthday her and her twin sister's birthday and asks if he can go get her medicine from the pharmacist so he does while he's out there he stops to get a cake and then he comes back and she's laying in bed and when he goes to present the cake to her with a knife to cut it she stabs him in the groin repeatedly and kills him and you find out that this is actually the mentally unhinged twin sister um dominique uh, her name is danielle um who's recently home from a mental institution um the murder is witnessed by um a neighbor across the street uh jennifer salt playing this grace collier lady character um who's an investigative reporter that's kind of run afoul with the police in staten island um she tries to get the police to investigate they initially don't want anything to do with her because she's kind of written some smear pieces on them um because they've committed like acts of police brutality and racial violence against uh you know people in the neighborhood um they go and investigate and they don't find anything in the house um because the ex-husband who's actually you find out is her doctor um that worked with her and helped to separate her and her conjoined twin um covers up like puts the body in a couch a fold fold up couch and then gets it taken away um so nobody believes grace uh but grace keeps investigating the case of these sisters um ends up trailing uh 
the ex-husband Emil and Danielle to this um what's referred to as uh fuck what do they call it? like a residential loony bin or something I think one of the characters calls it in the movie mm-hmm. this experimental treatment facility that's down the road in Staten Island um which I think is actually based on the real life place in Staten Island that um Geraldo made his bones in investigating. Do you know about this? Oh, yeah. I do remember that when I was a kid. Yeah, reading about it in my teenage years, I guess. Yeah, I'm I'm pretty sure that the, that's the, you know, the inspiration for this movie in a lot of ways. Um, so, Emil, who is still trying to protect Danielle, um, hypnotizes Grace into thinking, number one, that there was no murder and there is no body. Or there is no body because there was no murder. Um, and then causes her to have a um, psychotic break where she imagines herself as um, Dominique as the twin sister. And you find out that there is no Dominique because um, Emil had gotten Danielle pregnant um, when she was under his care. And then when they went to separate uh, Dominique and Danielle, um, Dominique died and it caused Danielle to kind of absorb the personality and causes her to have these psychotic episodes where she, uh, you know, murders people. Um, so she ends up stabbing Emil and killing him and he collapses on top of, um, Grace's, uh, body who's been sedated and laying on the bed. Um, and in the end, Charles Durning, who I didn't even mention, who's a private investigator that's helping Grace, kind of investigate these killings um tracks the dead body to somewhere in british columbia i think or something um and grace has sort of had this psychological break from the hypnosis and the trauma where she can admit that even though the police are now like on board and saying like hey like we understand there's been a murder and you know you're right where she can't break free from um from his spell even though he's already dead so just if anybody wants to google whatever it's willowbrook was the name of that place that you're talking about and you can just type in Geraldo rivera willowbrook and you can see that like old like expose yeah there's actually a really good um i don't know if docudrama is the right word uh, called cropsy mm. which is sort of a half real half fake um version of a local like urban legend in staten island about an escaped killer from Willowbrook. Um, it's worth watching. It's like an hour and a half, but it's 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 gotcha. pretty decent. And it talks about um, Geraldo like sort of exposing that in the in the seventies. Also, sort of the I think an inspiration for um, that first season of <clears throat> American Horror Story too. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Second season. Yeah. Second season. Sorry, you're right. Yeah, the first season's the weird one. Yeah. Um. I, I didn't really narrow it down at all there, but right. So yeah, so Sisters is probably the best movie on this list in terms of um De Palma's technical prowess and direction. Um it does a lot of really interesting things with split screen, mm-hmm. um, especially during the time when Grace is trying to get the police to take her seriously. Um, and investigate this killing and Emil is working diligently to cover the killing up um, I've, I, I think all that stuff is fascinating um, really good use of angles like it's very very much a direct homage to Hitchcock from yes. De Palma and yeah. 
De Palma never, um, never shy about his love for Alfred Hitchcock. Um, but this is, I think, one of the more subdued and appropriate uh, Hitchcock homages. Um, I asked you earlier if, if you thought that there was some influence towards Lost in this movie, mostly because of the way that there's an there's a, a, a sequence where Grace is watching old um, film reel footage from uh, the Lily Lillian Academy or whatever they call this mm -hmm. place. Um, and the way that it's filmed is very reminiscent of the station videos that they watch on Lost mm -hmm. with Marvin Candle. Um, yeah. Just in both the setting and the, the set design of the videos and the way that the way that uh, the guy that's pre presenting the information speaks and looks mm -hmm. at the camera. Um, it just, it, I was wondering just when we were talking, when we were texting earlier, when I was watching this movie, because I watched this last night, <clears throat> if there was some influence there on um, uh, Lindelof and uh, Carlton Cuse when they were kind of building the world of Lost, if they thought about that and kind of that smarmy, like hidden science kind of way that um, the Dharma Initiative has in Lost. Um, and is really yeah, and I, I didn't think about that until you mentioned it, and then it's like yes, I, 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 I mean, I think definitely it has to have some influence on it. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, so this is um, I mean, Margot Kidder is probably the, I mean, absolutely the standout performance here. Mm -hmm. Um, and then um, what's his name? The guy. Uh, Emil William Finley, who plays Emil Breton, um, does a really great job um, as the smarmy, uh, unctuous, overbearing like Frenchman, mm -hmm. French Canadian, I guess. Um, a really excellent villain, um, especially because he feels so ineffectual early on, and then like just increasingly, you see like the power he has over this woman and. The power he can have over anyone pretty much just with mm -hmm. his authority and it becomes a really really powerful like menacing villain performance um but yeah I, I think it's a really great movie um this is another one that i don't know gets talked about enough and i think part of that might be i don't know how much de palma is kind of uh held in the steam anymore in the modern era i mean there was a time um, so, so yeah, quickly, let me just ask, like, we've talked about the Palma with this movie, Blowout, like, we've still never talked about Carrie. Um, yeah, that's another one that I'm holding off. Like, I wanted to put Carrie on a list in the 70s, but mm -hmm. Carrie, to me, has such a special place that I... And there's other movies in the 70s, obviously, that have a really special place in my heart. But Carrie, to me, there's something about that movie that it just, it needs to be exactly the right list. And I don't think it's a best of a year list that I want to put Carrie sure, on. Sure, sure, sure. But, but so, so he has those three, right? Like, you know. Yeah. But one of the questions that, and you knew this one was coming, is what the hell, what the hell happens to that guy? I think he believes his own hype a lot yeah. um 
I think he kind of runs out of things to say at a certain point. I mean, because he has Scarface. That's been on a list, you know, like, um, like right, you know, right after Blowout. But it's like nothing else, unless I get Carlito's list or way on a list at some point, like maybe like um, someday. But like, God, Casualties of War, The Untouchables is fine. But then The Bonfire, The Vanities, Raising Cain, like, you know, The First Mission Impossible, Snake Eyes, which you did, you did talk about. Like, it's, it's a, and The Black Dahlia, which I've mentioned on like some supplemental podcasts before, like watching finally and like hating. It's, it's bad, man. Well, if it makes you feel better, you'll probably get Phantom of the Paradise on the list at some point. And you may even get Fury on the list at some point. Okay. All right. I mean, really, you look at that first Mission Impossible movie is not terrible, but it's yeah. definitely not as good as any of the other right. Mission Impossible movies. It's just kind I, of one I of those things. I might prefer it over two, but because I don't like two. But. It's kind of one of those things where I feel like he moved away from what he was doing best. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and just kind of never went back to it. Yeah, yeah, it's a shame. I mean, because he has some good movies that I've now seen like early on, and I, yeah. Um, one thing I want to ask you about because this is another one I don't have a. I, I thought it was an entertaining movie. I thought I, I thought it was unique. I thought it was different. I I I didn't know what to expect in this movie um like you said i thought it was a bit derivative at times of hitchcock but i definitely thought it was an original interesting story that was really well directed and i i didn't know like you know like i, w- I was intrigued I, I was interested in seeing what was coming you talked about the split screen though and i noticed this all the whole thing too and i realized that like that the palma does split screen a lot and I was trying to see, like, did Hitchcock do split, split screen? And he doesn't. So, like, I did a lot of research and, like, who's that starred... rear window? Mm-mm. Really? Yep. That's crazy. I have, like, a very definite image in my head. I must just be imagining it. Um, so, it's like, there's some people really early on in the film that do it. The first, like, which I guess you would consider modern that does it is uh, I've never seen a movie called Pillow Talk. It's a it's a rom com with rock cuts and Doris Day. Um, oh but boy. then the Pat, but then the Patty Duke show does it apparently, which makes sense, right? Like the duality thing. Um, and then it's like there's a couple others that I I'm not familiar with. There's Warhol does it in an experimental film, apparently. But then Grand Prix does it that we talked about mm, with Easter. Yeah um and then it's like the thomas crown affair does it and a couple more airport does it um andromeda strain does it which we've talked about before on the podcast and then it's him like so i i'm he also does it in dionysus in 69 um brian de palma does like before this um is some sort of performance art thing like of a stage play yeah that makes sense so like i don't know like where he gets it from but he does it constantly he does split screen like if you start thinking about it the palma does split screen in in most of his movies um he does it in blowout he does it in carry yeah like he does it in 
and I looked, and it's like he does it in Potify the Vanities, he does it in all these other things. And it's like the when I think of split screen, like I actually think of like Tarantino doing it in some of his movies, Kill Bill notably, um Jackie Brown, he does it. Like I, Paul Thomas Anderson, I think of split screen, like in Boogie Nights. Um I think they're both making homages to De Palma, honestly. Probably. So what I'm saying is De Palma like really like <laughs> not the originator but like maybe the purveyor then of split screen yeah i think De Palma was super influential in a lot of ways like De Palma's one of the first dudes to really use um sound in the way that he does in his movies in terms of like it's him and fuck the guy that directed deliverance i can't remember his name um john borman yeah, John Borman. Both are very big on using the different channels of audio to tell the story in addition to the visual aspect of it, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and I think that, you know, like, I mean, maybe you could call it like a crutch almost because if you're filming in split screen, you don't necessarily have to tell the whole story you can just tell two stories or two parts of the story simultaneously, I guess. I don't know how else to say it other than that. Right. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think De Palma was a lot more influential than people give him credit for later in life just because he kind of fell off so much and um, sort of lost some of that momentum and import that he had in the early 70s but i think looking at this movie sisters definitely shows why he was influential and important for a period of time and i think you definitely can see where people like tarantino and maybe pt anderson um got some inspiration um just from the way that he films things right yeah it's just unfortunate he was so bland like later on um and his, both his subject matter and his uh, his direction. Um, I don't know. I don't know what that tipping point is, but uh, definitely is there somewhere. Right. Um, another thing that I wanted to bring up to you was this idea. Actually, oh. I can tell you exactly what his tipping point is. What's that? I, I, I can't even believe I didn't think about it. It's fucking Raising Cain, man. Like, uh, Raising Cain is such a terrible movie. And it should be such a great movie because of Lithgow and the subject matter and it's just so fucking over the top and bad um dude let me tell you casualties of war is a bad fucking movie yeah that movie doesn't exist to me though so <laughs> bonfire of the vanities is not a good movie either like that adaptation is not good yeah that's not true. A, i don't think it's a very good book either myself like um but it's certainly not a good movie um i think it's a very overrated book for the time period very boomerish um and not in a good way so yeah it's it's right around that period though it's that's the late 80s early 90s period but yeah i'm really impressed with what i've been seeing from him what i already knew and what i've seen now like from yeah 70s and 80s so i i'd like to see more definitely the other thing i wanted to ask you about is this idea of duality and doppelgangers in horror like why do you think that's such a prevalent concept that appears throughout so many decades like or centuries maybe even yeah. um i mean you know. it's 
yeah definitely centuries like there's especially in european folklore doppelgangers are um, it's like we got two movies this year for some reason that are you know i mean yeah when i was putting this list together i actually thought that was an interesting way to look at um these two movies is also why i put them together on the list in terms of their positioning Mm -hmm. um i don't know it's hard to explain like why is anything like there's certain things i think that from like a collective unconscious perspective speak to us as a people and i think the idea of a shadow self is one of the most powerful you know um i don't want to call it literary tools but one of the most powerful concepts and myth and it's something where the idea that you could be you could harbor some other version of yourself inside you or that there's some other version of yourself um that exists outside you that's trying to like take your place you know you look at that um spirits of the dead anthology uh that one segment it is about a doppelganger and um Mm -hmm. there's a kaishi kurosawa movie called charisma maybe is it that one anyway kaishi kurosawa the guy who did kira and um cairo did a movie about a doppelganger which is really effective um so yeah there's just a whole bunch of a whole bunch of like history i think built into us as a people where we have a fascination slash fear with that idea of like the dark inside of us you know um like going back to skin who did the myth of the cave is that aristotle or whatever plato plato mm-hmm. you know the idea that there's this projection of yourself against the wall that's like dark and shadowy and that you can't understand what it is i mean that's you know but the germans also are um germans and russians are really big on the idea of the the doppelganger i mean obviously it's you know where it comes from german yeah. but um also things called like uh, like a fetch which is a <clears throat> imitation of something that like jumps on you and clings to your back is a big you know one of their scary like folklore legends or whatever yeah um, it's big in jewish culture too like the doppelganger and i wonder too because this is based on a true story not the murder part of it but the siamese twin part of it mm-hmm. i don't know if you're allowed to call them siamese twins anymore but the conjoined twins portion of it um that maybe that's where De Palma kind of drew that inspiration from is because they were Russians, I think. Mm-hmm. The two women mm-hmm. that this is based on. Um yeah. that he was kind of pulling from that folklore sort of to build it. It also allows you to keep that suspense for a long period of the movie because they're identical conjoined twins played by the same actress where they just do her hair different. Right. Um, which I think is a really brilliant um visual trick to kind of never let you so did you think that the twin was dead on up until you found out that the twin was dead or did you think the twin was actually no i thought no no i thought the twin was a lot right yeah so really great job by de palma of kind of hiding that. yes agree um again just by the way that they sort of film um kidder and her mannerisms and her makeup and stuff right um but yeah i don't know yeah i don't know what about like duality in this year 
specifically. I don't really have any insight on that. I just think that it's a I just wonder if it ties. I wonder if it ties back. It is. I mean, certainly. I just wonder if it ties back into. Oh damn it! Um, that scared Jessica to death. Of like coming out of the '60s and into the '70s of a time of lack of identity, of uncertainty. I wonder if like that theme is just kind of playing itself out in the idea of of duality maybe in some way um sure it's possible again i think so there's a lot of this just me talking out my ass but i'm almost positive there's a lot of psychology from this time period that um especially like freudian and jungian psychology that deals with stuff like and you know joseph campbell who's like gaining super prominence at this point too um talking about you know the shadow self and yeah young duality of man and whatever yeah um yeah a lot of yeah i mean freud's out of date now like um by most people's standards but i mean yeah a lot of the Jungian um stuff and 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 obviously the joseph campbell stuff i mean this isn't too far away from lucas i mean um coming to prominence and like certainly that stuff is in the air um the the especially the young and stuff yeah um, the hero with a thousand faces i think was published not too long before this right like in the late 60s maybe and that's yeah I'm that's sure. campbell's big um actually never i always thought that was like sooner but um maybe not maybe i don't know i thought it was in the early 70s which one i could be wrong hero, hero with, with a thousand, thousand faces oh published so it's 49 49 oh man yeah okay, well there you go um but i mean he's continuously publishing like you know the power of myth is um you know first broadcast in 1988 actually so it's like you know which is building on um here a thousand faces and uh, uh mask of gods or whatever and something else yeah. but i mean um <clears throat> But yeah, all that stuff was in the air at the time. Um, but yeah, it's 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 a fascinating movie. It's um, it, from a historical perspective, and uh, you know, as as part of the I don't know, like history of like that idea, like duality, doppelgangers, um, and yeah, it's a really well directed movie. He doesn't like go overboard with fucking Dutch angles in this damn movie um which i appreciate because like that's something he starts doing later in his career is that damn dutch angle stuff like constantly and um yeah he starts like playing with the camera like way too much um later on but here it actually feels like it's effective it feels like it's like when he plays the camera it actually feels like it's necessary or like you know it adds to the scene as opposed to this is going to be a really weird comp, but um, a lot of it reminded me of uh, <clears throat> Ken Russell's camera work in The Devils from the previous mm-hmm. year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I felt a lot of real. Uh, I mean, obviously, completely different subjects, but sure, just sure. that feeling of so. um, experimentation and mm-hmm. newness in the way that uh, right. both of them approach filmmaking. Agreed. This this is why I love the '70s because you've got these directors that 
no matter what happens later in their lives, you know, they're taking risks and trying things and making these movies that you wouldn't even necessarily, I don't know, like think of being from those people, like, you know, and they're just willing to try. I love that. Like, I, I love that experimentation and that rawness to the way the movies are made. And there's definitely a feeling of rawness in, um, in Sisters. Yeah. And no, I mean, I, it's interesting. I, I always kind of like, we always joked about me dreading the seventies horror list, you know, um, at times like, Oh, he's going to make me watch like, like these kind of things. And you're right. I I've enjoyed all this stuff a lot more than I ever thought I would. And a lot of it is because it's like not only influential, but it's experimental. And there's actually like interesting thought going into the direction, the storytelling of things, even if it's not my cup of tea, sometimes like there's like actual, like real thought going into it. It's totally the opposite of the 1980s, a decade I love in the sense of um, not horror necessarily, but horror probably also include a little bit, but just in the kind of like the commercialism and the like, you know, know just the kind of standard just bullshit that kind of like comes out that's just like obviously phoned in directorially even if it's an interesting movie like um like i don't find anything like you know like gremlins like you know commercial hit movie that i love i think it's really entertaining but it's like when you think about dante's direction that movie is there anything that's like really like stand out necessarily like it's just competently filmed yeah right? very confident yeah and um but it's like you don't get any of the interesting stuff that you're seeing in this um so yeah i i agree with you like completely um that's like one of the more interesting elements like of all of this to me is like seeing people try new things um and learning the history from you sometimes i don't know about like things that like i didn't even know it's new like necessarily um <clears throat> all right so number one on your list this is going to be interesting, is Children Shouldn't Play With Dead Things. It's directed by Bob Clark. It stars Alan Ormsby, Anya Ormsby, Jane Daly, Jeff Gillen, uh, Paul Cronin. It has a 42% from critics and a 39% from audiences. So um, it is the lowest reviewed uh, out of any of these movies, both critically and uh, audience-wise. So can you tell us a little about the movie and explain why you put it as number one on your list? Uh, this is easily one of my favorite zombie movies of all time. Um, one of my favorite movies of the 70s as well. Uh, the plot involves a series of kind of hippie rejects, I guess, or hippie um, survivors, like led by Alan, who's a they're a, a theater group, a play group, and they're led by Alan, who's this megalomaniacal um, asshole director um, who's decided that as a uh, um, kind of a live action, almost like installation piece that they're going to go to this supposedly haunted island and spend the night in this house. Um, he has a setup where two of his cronies are um, masquerading as the dead um basically to scare them um and then they're gonna do some supposed black magic uh that he has in this kind of like necronomicon style book um completely over the top scenery chewing performance by alan ormsby yeah um 
I fucking love it. Uh, yeah. I think it's really funny and witty yeah. and evil and one of the most dislikable characters ever put the film. Oh possibly. yeah, yeah, amazing! Just yeah. how awful yeah. this dude is. Biggest heel. Ever. Um. So they have a dead body there. Um. That Alan is using for this supposed ritual, and really all he's doing is trying to scare them because he wants to get into the pants of the one, and he wants to sort of exert his dominance as a leader of this troop. Um, but unfortunately, he ends up summoning the dead. So then it becomes kind of a semi homage to Night of, the, Night of the Living Dead in terms of like the people trapped in the house, mm-hmm. um, where the dead are trying to come in to you know to kill them. Um, and they do, and that's the movie pretty much is just <clears throat> them trying to fend off these hordes of undead while Alan is continuously just being a prick. Um, and then the zombies, which I, I wonder maybe if uh, Fulci's zombie is an homage, like takes from this in the idea of the zombies getting on the boat and heading back into the city. Um, you know sort of to spread their their destruction like to the populace all because of alan's hubris or whatever um i love the makeup in this movie i love the practical effects in this movie i think all the performances have a real element of humanity to them um in terms of the supporting cast uh I, they're all just i guess local like small theater actors um except for alan ormsby who's Again, just a ridiculously sadistic menace, but he's getting amazing to watch the whole time. Um, I love seeing somebody like Bob Clark uh, early in his career doing movies like this. Um, Here's a guy that you would know from Porky's and Black Christmas and A Christmas Story, I think probably most famously. Um, But just like genuinely enjoying himself, I think, filming this movie. Um, I like the way that the graveyard scenes are filmed. Um, I think that he captures this real like raw element of darkness and kind of creepiness without being like the over the top, like gory horror. It's, it's more of like a Halloween-y feel to it. Um, I found this movie, I had no idea this movie existed. Um, and then I, I can't remember, like, somehow I read about Bob Clark, because um, obviously I knew Christmas Story and Porky's and shit, but Black Christmas. I read about Bob Clark, and I was fascinated by the idea of this movie, and um, Kino Video, I think, released a special edition DVD in, like, 2001, and I bought it um, and saw it for the first time and just fell in love with it immediately. Um, I've probably seen this movie a dozen times in my life. Um I think it's a quick watch. Like, I think it goes by really fast. Mm-hmm. And I think it's entertaining from start to finish. Um, I wish Alan Ormsby was in more things because I just like his <laughs> creepy assholishness mm-hmm. that he's got going on. Um, he's actually pretty interesting, Ormsby. Um, yeah. Because he was a screenwriter for a long time. Um, I mean, and director yeah and director we've talked um, about popcorn on the 1991 horror list um 
and we talked about deranged was on your top five 70s horror that we made early on in the podcast in like the first like 20 episodes or so 30 episodes so wrote death dream which we've never talked about which is a really really good movie mm-hmm. um mulan of all things i can't believe you wrote that that's pretty crazy and he wrote cat people that we talked about um, yeah last october but here, just I, I love him here in this element of being just an absolute creep to everybody, sure. um, and the catalyst for ostensibly the end of the world, right? Uh, which I think is pretty funny. Sure. Um, so. Yeah. Megalomaniacal, like you know, like ego, like is yeah. what leads to the end of the world, which is pretty, pretty accurate. I mean, to me, like. I, a lot of people are going to watch this movie and probably say, well, what's really special about it? I mean, it's really not anything but like a typical zombie movie, but sure. there's just so much love from like everyone that made this movie. Like, you can feel the investment on the part of, you know, the principles and the direction and the set design. And it just, it, it feels small and it feels like an indie movie, but it's got like, in my opinion, just such a like irresistible charm to it. And I genuinely enjoy watching this movie every time I watch it. Like I, I, I really love this movie. Yeah. So yeah, that's I why really, it's number one. Yeah. I thought it was a really fun, slow burn movie. Um that you're right. I think it's well paced, it went by quick. I mean, most of the most of the criticism is about the direction of it how cheap it looks and like how you actually don't get anything consequential action wise until the last 30 minutes that's yeah that's that's the criticism of it so it's again it's very much i think people in the modern day going back and looking at this and not being overall excited about it which the thing here is clark is filming this movie almost a decade before the large um glut of zombie italian italian zombie horror mm-hmm. um but there's so much like we we talked about burial ground um i can't remember what list that was on yeah i can't remember either terrible movie right but mm-hmm. the makeup the way that it's filmed like you see all of that coming from the way that bob clark films this stuff on a low budget you know just making a cheap movie but investing it with this i don't know to me this like real undeniable charm that i um i genuinely love and i think that you see a lot of that influence on the italian directors especially the italians over the next like decade and a half with their zombie movies Mm -hmm. um because the real, the like, you get the close-ups of the guys, the the what you think are ghouls in the beginning, the ones that are burying um, or digging up. What's his name? Fuck. Is it Harvey? What's the name of the? You yeah, I've moved so many. Um, hold on. Orville. Yes. When they dig up Orville or Orville Dunworth. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that you think are like ghouls or whatever. I mean, like that makeup is purposefully fake looking, I think, to throw you off so that when you see the zombies, you're a little more forgiving of the fact that they're not as, you know, 
that the makeup effects aren't as like high budget maybe as he would have wanted but um i don't know yeah i I love this movie if you've never seen it it's what like 80 85 minutes 87 minutes long something like that yeah it's not um right definitely 85 or something definitely worth the hour and 20 minutes of your time to sit down and watch and i think they'll enjoy it like i think if you like horror movies and i think if you like zombie movies in particular and if you like those weird like one-off performances of people that you know just make you laugh and stay with you for a long time i think that ormsby's performance is is brilliant in that respect so right yeah fun movie i liked it um probably the funnest movie i think on this list yeah that's why it's number one for me i mean i i i think sisters is arguably the quote-unquote best movie right on the list but um i definitely enjoy watching i'd watch this like a million times over sisters though again like yeah a million but i but yeah i'd watch this long before i'd ever watch sisters again even though i agree yeah sisters might be the better movie overall like all right um so next month i mean if you just look up the horror movies in 1973 everybody can like know it's like it's a horror movie we've never talked about before it'll be interesting to have that conversation finally um in 1973 but i'm honestly more than that i'm more interested in another movie we've never talked about before but you you had me watch 15 to 20 years ago um that i absolutely love so um i'm really excited about next month's uh 73 list um there's there's a lot of good stuff on there we really don't have another list like this for the rest of the 70s i mean pretty much there's at least one or two movies on every single list that have like a great deal of import i think to um horror in general and film like more broadly so i'm i'm pretty excited to have those conversations i'm really looking forward to next month's list yeah yeah i am personally too. yep all right um well thank everybody for listening um we will be back with the top five horror movies in 1973 next month but in the meantime we'll be taking a break again and then back in two weeks with the top five horror remakes that are as good as the original which spans multiple decades uh thank you for listening and have a great week yep deuces